With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 100th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. And then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners throughout the world. I sincerely appreciate you and all of the 70-plus countries where you're located. I, I really, truly thank you for listening and sending all your messages, and I sincerely hope that you are all doing well. My June Privacy Professor Tips message was published on May 31st. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and enter your email in the box on your screen. And as always, they are free. So I have a really special guest today for my 100th show. First, a little background. I first met him in 1998 when he came to the corporation where I was responsible for the information security and privacy program and he gave some thought-provoking and quite frankly highly entertaining as well as highly informative talks throughout the day that almost all of our 18,000 plus employees attended either in the corporate auditorium or through our satellite links. He wrote the famous and groundbreaking dissertation, Polarimetry of Jupiter at Large Phase Angles, for his doctorate of philosophy degree from the University of Arizona. And he spent over two years researching that paper. So go read it, please. You can find it online. I've included a link to it in my Voice America Show website for this episode. And I can tell you, you are going to learn a lot about the scattering processes on planetary atmospheres. Besides providing a thoroughly researched paper on polarimetry of Jupiter, my guest also gained worldwide attention as a cybersecurity investigator from his best-selling book, The Cuckoo's Egg, Tracking a Spy Through the Maze of Computer Espionage. In it, he describes the true story of how he caught a ring of hackers who stole secrets from military computer systems and sold them to the KGB. And get and this was in the late 1980s. He also uh, creates and he sells Klein bottles and a wide range of other products, such as hats that are shaped like Klein bottles. And if you don't know what Klein bottles are, 
Ask Your Math Teacher. They are really cool. And also, he is an astronomer. And if you haven't guessed by now, my guest for today is Dr. Clifford Stoll. Cliff, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Well, hi, Tiggity. It's a delight to see you again, Rebecca, and, and just fun to be here. And 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 I wish that somebody would would call me up and say, so tell me about the scattering matrix of Ju- the, the particles in Jupiter's upper atmosphere. Because once upon a time, like 40, 45 years ago, I actually knew something about it. Happily, I'm... <laughs> I can't claim to be doing astronomy anymore. So, so there's plenty of other people who know more about this than I do. <laughs> well, you'll have to read your own paper. You I'll have a link to it so you can see. It. <laughs> that was that was my PhD dissertation way, way, way long ago. Uh, uh-huh. When, uh, uh, which, which, in fact, is, I mean, talk about way long ago. It's been uh, 15, 20 years since I saw you. So, um, yeah, the, the hair in my head has gotten considerably grayer. <laughs> but you still have a whole lot of hair from the photos that I've seen. So, good yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, I here's something that I think is so important because you made a point back when I met you in 1998. And I thought it was so important, especially for those who do cybersecurity, but also who are in IT and they build networks and software. You impressed upon me through your talk the fact that it is important to notice little things. Little things can indicate really big problems. And you exposed an international espionage by caring about 75 cents. So I was wondering if you could explain that to our listeners. (laughs) Um, One of the weird things that I need to tell my friends today is that once upon a time, there was a time when computers were things that had value and you would pay money to use them. So, so I was an astronomer over at the uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs here in Berkeley, and I was running, sort of in my in, a, in spare time, running a couple Unix computers. And so, go back to 1986, 87. Uh, so I'm running a bunch of Unix computers, and the way we pay our salaries essentially was charge each department for how much time they use on the computer. Today, it's silly. Don't charge somebody for using a, uh, a computer in your microwave even in a day, right? So, um, built, uh, we had a freshman or sophomore uh, from Berkeley uh, write a, an accounting program to, to keep track of who used how much time on the system. Mm. That seems, seems reasonable. And I, so I went down to building 50's second floor and go down there and one day... The counting program's dead in the water. You know, we're losing money because it's not running. And we start looking at it and poking at it. Turns out that, indeed, someone had used nickels and dimes, 50, 75 cents worth of computer time, and never paid for it. The account didn't exist. There was a Unix account. There was a Unix password, but there was not an accounting program password. So... I go into the Etsy password file and start poking around. Yeah, everything looks good on one side. And the other side, I realize that whoever wrote the accounting software never really did any error 
correction or error checking. In fact, quite the opposite. <laughs> uh, it was written by a freshman. So, errors, mistakes? No, I don't even bother looking for it. So the accounting program crashed, which made me wonder, you know, how come somebody's using this without mm-hmm. permission? And I started poking at it, looking at it, and realized, oh, my God, wait a second. Somebody has is using our Unix system, has an account, has a password in there, but doesn't show up in the accounting. And, uh, blah, 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 blah. So I'm sitting in some physics seminar one day thinking about this, mm-hmm. watching the <laughs> watching the the some some clown writes equations on the chalkboard, and I said, you know, how could somebody add an account to the Unix system but not know about adding it to something in the accounting system. I'm thinking about it. Oh, mm-hmm. you'd have to have super user privileges. You'd have to have root privileges. I'm looking mm-hmm. at it, thinking about it. And, and rolling it around my head, I say, well, it's Friday. How about if I just watch to see what's happening in the system? Let's just <laughs> what else nope. can you do on a Friday, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's Friday. It's Berkeley. So, I waited around till five, five thirty, six o'clock. Everybody leaves, and then went around to people's offices with one of these uh, lab carts, you know, the ones with wheels on them. And they just went from office to office, liberating people's uh, teletypes and printers and desktop computers—the kind of thing that you know, just borrow them for the for the night and wheeled wheeled about ten, twenty, thirty of them down to the basement of Building Fifty and. And started looking at things and hooked mm-hmm. them up to the system so that every time somebody would come in from the outside into our system, I'd be able to see what they're doing. I'll print it all out. Mm. Smart. So, you know, I unrolled a sleeping bag behind these old Unix computers. They, they were made sometime around, oh, still a little bit before the end of the Civil War. And mm-hmm. I was there and I'm... Uh, get a thermos of minestrone, and so I spent the night sleeping next to a bunch of Vax computers and fun workstations, and next morning I wake up surrounded by these teletypes and such and that, and I say, oh, oh one of the teletypes has a teletype. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, nobody knows what a teletype is. Once upon a time, there were little printers that were like, Typewriters. So, oh, what's a typewriter? Well, anyway, there were the little printers where it would go bang, bang, bang. And every time a uh, message would go through, it would print it out on a piece of paper. So I look at this, and there's 20, 30 feet of paper coming out of it. Holy cow. And I'm, yeah, Rebecca, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at this. You know, in the morning, I'm saying, wait a second. Somebody has come, has dialed into my system, logged into the Unix machine. Turned around, found a hole in our operating system, used that to shut off accounting as well as the Unix account system. You know, know, he's invisible from here on out. And then goes out over a port that I'd never even looked at. It was goes out over something that <laughs> oh my god we had we had something called the Cisco router it was like the third or fourth router that Cisco had ever made <laughs> and we had it plugged into our system it was 
you know, better part of a rack <laughs> foot or two high. And, um, mm-hmm. and it went out over something that was the, called the ARPANET. Well, remember, yeah, this, because this was before uh, the Internet, right? I mean, yes, this was before the yes, Internet. Okay, 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 got it. Let me do a tangent off that tangent. Okay. All of, <laughs> Rebecca, all this stuff happened when way, way, way back when there were pterodactyls flying around and brontosauruses walking along Telegraph Avenue. I mean, this was long ago when, when uh, no kidding, no kidding, 2,400 baud modems were a rarity. Oh, my gosh. Can almost, you imagine people, yeah, almost, they wouldn't have yeah, the but, patience for yeah, that today. Almost, yeah. Hardly anyone had ever heard of the ARPANET, and almost nobody owned a pocket pager. Of course, today... Everything's changed. You know, everything's changed today. Today, 2,400 baud modems are a rarity. Mm-hmm. Today, almost nobody has heard of the ARPANET. And today, almost nobody owns a pocket pager. I mean, look at how things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, so, so, so going back there, we were one of maybe a handful, five, six places on the West Coast that had access to this rather obscure network called the ARPANET, which mm-hmm. eventually would develop into something called, 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 remind me of that, would you? Maybe the, the uh, big eye. Uh... Yeah, it would evolve into the, into the today's Internet. But um, at that time, the ARPANET was just, it was an odd thing. You'd send a message from here on the West Coast to the East Coast just to see if the damn thing was working. Yeah. <laughs> you had no idea whether it was connected. The backbone of the Internet at the time ran at something like 400 or 500 characters per second. <laughs> so, oh it's long so, so I'm there, I'm looking at this. Somebody's breaking into my system. I can see from the paper printout that they go out over what was then the ARPANET and try to break into military computers out on the, the milnet, the military side of the ARPANET, mm-hmm. watching, just pawing through the paperwork, scratching my head and seeing somebody trying to break into the Aniston Army Depot, uh, Space Command. Things just are weird. Mm-hmm. And mind you, mind you, I'm over here in Berkeley on the on the West Coast. If somebody were to break into my computer, I'd expect them to be looking for looking for granola recipes, not <laughs> atomic secrets and figuring out how rockets were being launched. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely weird. Mm-hmm. And I started, as I looked over carefully, I could see, first of all, the holes in my Unix software that the guy was exploiting. I could see how... Mm. Somebody was very patient, just going from node to node across the network, trying to break into systems. If they succeeded, hey, they'd go out and dump all the files, looking for looking for things like atomic things and strategic defense initiative stuff like this. Nineteen eighty six, remember? Mm. Absolutely weird. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we got up this Saturday and. Monday morning, we have a meeting of, you know, director of the lab and important people who wear suits and ties, and I'm just in, you know, 
my grubbies in Berkeley, and, and there's a big meeting, and they say, oh, my God, this is serious stuff. This guy is a root user. He's a sysadmin on my, on my Berkeley system, and as such, you know, he can, or she, who, who knows who it is, can do what they want. They can erase files, change things, exploiters. So the director said, hey, catch this guy. Take mm-hmm. all all the time, all the energy, all the equipment that you need, mail the SOP. Mm-hmm. So, well, for lucky you know this guy. <laughs> you were <laughs> talking about 20, 30 years ago. But how should I say? Times have changed, but from the frame of reference of the mid-1980s, this was exceptionally weird because at the time, it was the Cold War. The Soviet Union existed. Mm-hmm. Berlin was divided into Germany. There was an East Germany and a West Germany. It was it was some interesting political times, to say the least, unlike today, which has an interesting political time. So, mm-hmm. so, so, a day or so later, oh, hell's bells! I did exactly what you would do, right? I, I, I'm over there in Berkeley. I'm uh, I'm over here, and I'm saying, "Well, what should I do? How can I get some help?" So, I mm-hmm. called the FBI. Ah. I called the FBI Oakland field office. Right? You know, just stuff like you. You gotta call the authorities. Call mm-hmm. the Oakland field off the FBI guy. The FBI says, oh my God, somebody's bringing your computer while you're busy. And I explained to him, oh yeah, they're going out over the airport. They're trying to break into military computers. They're trying to get in using guests, uh, password lists and password anonymous protocols. And then describing how, what I'm seeing and how they're using the Telnet protocol and TCP IP to break into things. And the guy at the FBI stops me and says, oh my God, this is serious. How much money have you lost? And I said, well, lost about 75 cents worth of computer time. (laughs) Guy says, look, kid, uh, it's not worth our time to even talk to you. When you lose a half million dollars, when you lose a half million dollars, call me then. Gosh, it doesn't matter that you have worldwide you know, concern about, you know, military unrest, 75 yeah, cents yeah, no, wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, uh, which indeed puts a an interesting comment on what is information worth, mm-hmm. which today has equally interest. I mean, this is a question that's not been, it has not really been thought through, and I wish somebody would think hard about this. What's the value of information? Obviously, uh, obviously, if, you know, Ospital's method of doing, uh, doing calculus is interesting, hey, but I doubt that you can get $5 for it, but to a student on an exam, that's really valuable. Um, so, at the time, I was very scratching my head saying, how can I put a value on stuff that this guy's stealing? And I, and I had a tough time then, and I still do. Uh, the economics of information is pretty fuzzy. So, mm-hmm. anyway, so, I kept working on this and started tracking the guy and 
figured maybe it's somebody from Berkeley, so I traced things across from Orange Berkeley Labs down through the University of California, Berkeley, over into Oakland, into an AT&T switching system, AT&T, another place that changed quite a bit. And finally, we were able to trace things back to the east coast of North America place and discover that whoever was breaking into my system was coming out of a company called MITRE. Oh, you know, I want to let my listeners know something, because when they hear you talking about tracing this, keep in mind, listeners, Cliff did not have a tool like Splunk or something else to trace this. (laughs) I mean, he was doing this. He was using his brain to figure this out to trace it. So this is just amazing. You got to understand how amazing this is. So stuff like like Wireshark, Splunk. No, you're looking. Um, you're looking at your ribbon of paper that keeps getting longer. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at, at at printouts of raw raw input and output. Yes. And in order to figure out exactly what's happening, I'm putting the bit stream on an oscilloscope. Yeah. So if I want to do timing on it, I want to see, oh, how long does it take for an echo to go from here back to there and back? Mm-hmm. I just put it on a, get out my trusty old Tektronics, put it on the oscilloscope and time it. In other words, once upon a time, um, mm-hmm. communications over, over a network was at the bits and bytes level. Mm-hmm. Today, we think of sending a file across the network and we shrug. Once upon a time, that was uh, an accomplishment. Uh, once it, <laughs> again, all of this is 35 years ago. So need, needless to say, I was a physicist, not a computer jock, not, not a network maven. Well, there were no network mavens at the time because the network was being developed. The Internet, as we know it now, was its babyhood. And we were, again, maybe one of three, five, maybe a half dozen sites on the West Coast that had mm-hmm. ARPANET access. So essentially, somebody had picked our place to break into and used us as what today we might call an ISP. They were using us as a yes. way to, as a pathway to get into other people's computers. So. So I tracked things back to a place on East Coast, place uh, defense contractor, wasn't it? Miter. Um, mm-hmm. And Miters, I call them up and they say, impossible, we're high security, we, we have <laughs> passwords, we, we have the latest fax, VMS computers, we kept everything up to date. And I say, yeah, but my phone places say it's coming out of flip, flip, flip phone number. And they say, that's our modem bank. So mm-hmm. somebody from our system is calling yours. So it took three or four times of calling them back and forth, and eventually they realized, oh, yeah, somebody actually was breaking into their system, exploiting their system to break into ours, using ours to break into military systems. <laughs> Tinkered every chance. One of these uh, uh, connection fiascos. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than collaborating with us and cooperating, they immediately uh to shut everything off, turn off all the computers, turn off the modems, oh. make sure nobody can get in now, which is, you know, for most businesses, this is a reasonable thing to do. In fact, uh, I was under pressure 
<laughs> under pressure, um, the Department of Energy, our funding agency, said, look, if Congress finds out that a hacker is breaking into your computers in Berkeley, they're going to cut our funding. Wow. We will double that cut and cut it from your laboratory. So don't do this anymore. Well, ah. You know, the FBI is saying don't do it. Uh, the Department of Energy says, don't, you know, just shut them out. Don't, don't let anything happen. Close your eyes. Close your mouth. You know? And so that, again, it didn't seem like fun, and it certainly didn't seem like quality physics to me. Well, no. Good physics. You have a question, you want to answer. You want to figure things out. So I kept poking around, and after MITRE shut its doors, um, we found that somebody was somebody began to connect to us quite directly, um, and uh, through another network called Timeless. Timeless long gone, but uh, happy thoughts remain. Decades afterwards, um, working with Timenet, we were able to trace this caller through an international record carrier, what today would be called a satellite link back mm-hmm. into Western Europe, Ooh. from there into Germany. And then we had the problem of, oh, how do we get a phone trace in Germany? Meanwhile, a lot of this communications is over the telephone network. Now, Rebecca, you will mm-hmm. remember, but I doubt any of your listeners remember. So, Rebecca, pardon me while I go off on tangent number 17. <laughs> once upon a t- once upon a time, a telephone was connected to your wall using this weird thing called a wire. Yes. And, but wait, wait, wait. Make sure you're sitting down for this. To make a phone call, you didn't push buttons so much as you put your finger in this disc and you move your finger around in a semicircle and then pull it out. And then the disc would have... 10 holes on it, we go click, 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 click. And then that was the first dial. And then you dial again, click, 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 click. Then you dial again, As you would do this, oh, I, I, I hear you laughing, Rebecca. It's true. No kidding. Oh. Oh, I, I I remember those. In fact, we're coming up on a break right now, Cliff, but I want to continue this because, yes, I was thinking of um, one ringy-dingy, two ringy-dingy. Remember that? Yes, yes, yes. That's what I was thinking of. <laughs> but but right now we have to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. How about take, a, take, a slow, take a slow break because my throat okay. hurts. Okay, okay. We'll be right back. I'm speaking no, today. No, no, no. We'll be back in a long time. We'll be back in a long time that will go by quickly. So I'm speaking today with Dr. Clifford Stoll, astronomer, Klein bottle creator, and author of The Cuckoo's Egg. I'm your uh, host, of course, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. Contact me with any questions or comments about this show, and you can use my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides key
keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs Visit privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice Privacy Business Professor. Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Clifford Stoll, who you just heard. He's an astronomer. He's a Klein bottle creator and the author of The Cuckoo's Egg. And before we left uh, for the break, he was telling us about tracking down these folks using a landline and and just think about cliff i mean as you're talking about this so back in 1986 arpanet very few nodes on that network right there so there's not a lot of places to choose from and you have a landline so back then there weren't that many comparatively so so one of the one of the problems is how do you track the landline phone it yes. turns out that when you make a dial phone call, a computer isn't handling the connections, at least it didn't 35 years ago. There were solenoids and relays and literally motors that moved to connect wires using plugs to one another. And yes. these connection systems made by Siemens Incorporated in Hanover, Germany, or made by Western Electric occupied huge buildings to and and there there were there was a whole dogma surrounding it stuff like wait for the dial tone and stuff so at any rate we had the problem that these hackers would break into our system they'd spend 15 20 minutes downloading information and then disappear meanwhile we'd call up the authorities they would contact you know, Germany, trace it back over to Germany into uh, into various places in Germany. And then the guy would disconnect, and we'd have to start all over again. Mm. So um, the the problem was to do a phone trace would take two hours, three hours. So how do you get somebody to be connected to your mm. phone for a long time, for three hours? Yeah. So I'm, at the, so I'm taking a shower with my sweetheart, and occurs to us, the thing to do is to just put enough stuff on our local computer here in Berkeley that the guy will just spend a couple hours downloading it. Yeah. What do you do? Uh, It became obvious the guy is interested in atomic secrets and rockets and defense things. So 
I got out some old physics papers, changed changed them to make them look like they were all about the strategic defense initiative computer network. Yeah. Then, you know, through some, you know, and then changed people's names. Every time somebody was professor so-and-so, you just change it to, to, uh, general, um, general something or another. Yeah. Somebody's a graduate student, change him to a colonel or a lieutenant colonel. You know, the bureaucracy of the military has a one-to-one onto mapping with the bureaucracy mm-hmm. of academia. Um, so, sorry, stay away from topology. Um, yeah, so, but I want to point out to our listeners, you create, did you create the first honeypot then? This sounds like yeah, you created is, the first honeypot. Wow, yeah, would, that's pretty cool. Today this would be a honeypot. Back then it was, oh, you just set a trap. Yes. So this, this clown star- discovers it in our system, spends an hour, two, three hours downloading it. 1,200 or 2,400 baud across across the international telephone systems, and they're getting all this gobbledygook about the Strategic Defense Initiative and data about all this stuff, and it's all just flowing out. Meanwhile, I call the FBI. The FBI calls the German Bundeskriminalat. The Bundeskriminalat calls the German uh, Bundespost, which ran the DTEXP network in, in Germany at the time, and they trace it back to this guy's house, this guy's house at, on Galaxiestrasse Street in Hanover, Germany. And, you know, it's four in the morning, and I'm just happy as a clam. And, I, I, and, and I'm dancing in the backyard singing, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead. Boy, I'll be able to have my life back after this. Yeah. But the Bundeskriminalant, they're no idiots. They decide to just wait for a while. They're going to uh-huh. arrest these people sometime, but they want just to watch. So a month, two, three months goes by. You know, three months after this, a letter comes in the mail from some guy in Pittsburgh. Guy in Pittsburgh writes to a fictional secretary who shows up in that gobbledygook honeypot. The honeypot was filled with all sorts of fictions, but one of them was a Completely non-existent secretary. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, some guy in Pittsburgh makes a connection, writes a typewritten letter asking for more information about the Strategic Defense Initiative Network. Wow. I'm, so this letter shows up. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm over at the physics, physics lab at the Lawrence Berkeley Labs. And, and, uh, I'd say this is completely weird. So, 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 so I call. Yeah, I do what you do. I call the FBI. The FBI says, "Oh my God, whatever you don't touch that letter. It's got fingerprints on it." it. <laughs> Did they so think they it was poisoned or what? No, they tell me I'm supposed to wear latex gloves and wow. send it to their crime lab and some uh, glassine envelope and stuff like this. So I send it out to them. It turns out that. At that point, they took me seriously. From then oh. on, oh, yeah, I, I was actually one of the good guys, or at least well, not one of the bad guys. And they realized that somebody, in fact, was stealing information going at it. It turned out the guy in Pittsburgh oh. was a 
uh, contractor for what was then the Bulgarian embassy or the Bulgarian consulate, which was then a a Soviet bloc organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the FBI had been watching him for a long time. It turns out that, 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 in fact, the puppeteer system ran something like, oh, some hackers in Germany, five of them, mm-hmm. had gotten together and said, hey, we can make money by stealing information and selling it to the German Stasi and the Soviet KGB. Mm-hmm. And they'll pay us in cash, in cocaine, and that way we can make dough off of it. They did exactly that. And in turn, the Soviet KGB said, we got to check this out, see if this is valid. Mm -hmm. And so they got a hold of the Bulgarian consulate, who (laughs) who had their friend in Pittsburgh write a letter to say, is this reasonable? So, oh, oh, I see. So that's how the guy in Pittsburgh got involved. Yeah, the guy from in Bulgaria. Was, okay. Yeah, he's you know he was at the end of a long string doing what he was told to do. Find out if there really is this kind of a uh, of a thing called the Strategic Defense Initiative Network and get more data about it because we in at the embassy, and especially the Soviet KGB, want this information, and we want to know that these German hackers are not just yanking our string. We're checking up on them. Mm. So, so, and by uh, six months or a year later, several of these guys were arrested. I went to a city called Sella in Germany and testified at a trial, and a uh, guy got two years with two years in, of prison time, which was soon commuted when the Berlin Wall disappeared. And then things died down by, well, not, the, the whole thing ended around 1989, 88, 89. And so, uh, and I've left out parts of it that you mm-hmm. can sort of fill in yourself, you know, places like the CIA was interested. They flew some... <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, check this out. So the CIA is addressed this, and they send out several CIA people. I wouldn't say agents. They're just people. They come to Berkeley, yeah. and they stop by the lab. Oh. Well, well, we all go out to Blondie's Pizza over on Telegraph Avenue. Well, <laughs> um, these four or five guys are all wearing suits and ties. Everybody <laughs> else is wearing uh, Berkeley garb, you know. And the highly dressed ones of us were wearing flannel shirts. Everybody else was wearing T-shirts and Um, tie-dyes. They stood out like a sore thumb, and I thought, (laughs) if if this is what James Bond has evolved into, um, (laughs) we've got troubles in our world. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, yeah, they, they were very interested in this, but they couldn't help us. Meanwhile, the NSA, the... Uh, was extremely interested in all of this and were following things and, and would uh, would call and wanted everyone wanted copies of my notebooks. What if, uh, mm-hmm. Rebecca, this is a, this is a curious thing even today. Um, mm-hmm. My background was experimental physics. 
<laughs> and one of the few, well, one of the very few things I learned as a physicist was, look, you keep a notebook. Yes. If you don't write it down, it didn't happen. You go to the telescope, you're observing a planet, or you're looking at something, you write down what you're doing so that your observations aren't wasted. If mm-hmm. you don't write it down, it didn't happen. Well, well, almost nobody in computing keeps a notebook. They think, oh, oh yeah. uh, I've got email, I've got, I've got logbooks. I can look through the logs with Splunk or some, some parser. Well, mm-hmm. that's true, but the discipline and the organization that you get from keeping a notebook of all simple, trivial things, yes. man, it, it gives you such leverage because the written word, especially the handwritten word, people go nuts when they say, hey, I've got notes from four months ago saying this happened on this date, this time. Mm-hmm. So naturally, the NSA wanted all my notes. Oh, I have no problem sending them to them. But what I said, hey, can you help me out? Can you help me with a phone trace going across the, the Atlantic? Can you help me understand this? Mm-hmm. No kidding. Guy from the NSA says, look, I can't even confirm that I'm talking to you. Oh, no. (laughs) It was classic. Everyone wants answers. Nobody wants to lift a finger. So this happened, which, of course, other other things like um, the whole time you're doing, doing this, well, I... Two other jobs at the lab. I'm supposed to be doing designing off-axis hyperboloids for the Keck 10-meter telescope that we're building, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, Fourier transforms of, of of optics and doing physical optics and trying to get the the do all of this on a pipsqueak computer. You know, you try doing a 512 by 512 Fourier transform on <laughs> on a 16K machine. No, anyway, yes, um, and. And meanwhile, I'm trying to run a help desk. I'm trying to administer a couple Unix boxes and stuff like this. So naturally, my boss and others say, hey, don't waste your time chasing down some hackers. Do something useful. Oh, no. no. Of course, course, whenever you're working anywhere, um, you will never, how can I put it, you know, the the tools that I had, it was, you know, you use a, 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 a screwdriver as a chisel. Mm-hmm. You use a hammer as a, as a, <laughs> use a wrench as a hammer. The, the point is, in experimental physics, you never have all the equipment you need. You never have all the expertise and the knowledge. You never know Python so perfectly that the scripts write themselves. Mm-hmm. Whenever you're doing physics or working in any area, even, dare I say, computer security, oh, yeah. you, never, you never have all the tools you need, all the understanding that you need. All, you never have all the support you need from management and your colleagues. No. You're always within this bizarre envelope of not enough money, not enough time, too many demands, and too little of too little of your time. 
Yes. When that happens, you know you're doing the right thing. Yes. And can I add something, too, to that? Because even when you do have the tools, which is important, as you pointed out, you still have to do critical thinking. I've seen too many people just just depend upon the output of tools. But what I love about what you did was you actually thought about it. You you did critical thinking to say this is not right. (laughs) Yeah. What? Um. Um. There's no super secret way to make a secure system. Mm-hmm. Um, several things that seem obvious to me of look at your log books, look mm-hmm. at your logs themselves, go, you know, use tools, sure, Splunk and friends, um, and actually look at what your system log is telling you. Look at your routers, you know, that blinking green light over there. Um, if nobody's doing anything, how often should that little green light blink? Mm-hmm. How long since you've actually looked at the router and, and dumped its logs? How often have you looked at, uh, looked at Wi-Fi accounts? There's, there's lots of places that, that worms and, and all sorts of insects hide. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion today, the, the niches, the, the hiding places, the places where there's trouble, is less and less on, on computing and more and more in local area networks and their friends, the wider area networks. Mm-hmm. And endpoints, right? Yeah, the, the Internet of Things. Yes. If I yes. want if I want to sneak a back door into somebody's system, it's going to be a whole lot easier to do that by programming and burning into a burning into a system that's mass produced in God knows where mm-hmm. on earth and sending it out in ten thousand or a hundred thousand copies of a thermostat that goes yeah. in every business and every home. That's got to be a whole lot easier to do than figuring out, oh, uh, what's the latest zero day or minus one day for Windows with a whole team of Microsoft engineers working against you? No, I'll take the thermostat pathway every day of the week. Yes, or the Hello Barbies, because the kids, who's going to know about those smart toys? Gosh, nobody's going to check those. Yeah, yeah, or to the extent that they do. No one's going to wait for malware that 99% of the time goes nowhere, but one in 100 times sneaks into your local area network and finds an unprotected uh, pathway. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, to me, the, our love affair with the Internet of Things is, is poorly explored. Mm-hmm. People put... People put video cameras on their house and attach their rings to to the internet, and they report back. Hey, if I'm going to, if if I were an adversary, I'd say, oh, that's a neat way to start. Well, happily, I'm not an adversary. <laughs> yes, but I will say, I will say, yep, uh, the router coming to my place over here. Um, I watch carefully 
it's got a number of of trap doors in it. So when somebody comes knocking at it, it'll look to a few people like, oh, there's a hole, an opening there. And when it does, it rings a bell. Yes. <laughs> I hear that bell loud and clear. Uh, in other words, I'm putting in... I want, I want to watch for footprints mm-hmm. coming and going through my system. Oh, trust, but verify. Oh. All of this has almost nothing to do with what you're asking about. But <laughs> no, it, I, well, I think it, it, it does, though, because the basis of what you are talking about now started with identifying a 75-cent, you know, charge that is unaccounted yeah. for so yeah. i mean um, i love that because I, and i uh, i gotta say i have lots and lots of notebooks too that are when my sons even when they look at them they're like what is this because some of them just have numbers and it's because yeah. when i notice something it's like oh it's in, this is interesting one time yeah. and uh i noticed a, a pixel in a, a background image all of a sudden, yep. it changed. You know what I mean? And I know you yep. would notice yep. Yep. it. Why did it change? Something's going yep. on. And uh, yeah, so I, I love that you're doing that. There's no, there's no substitute for curiosity. Yes. Uh, in what you know, I've taught grad students. I've had under taught undergrads. I've taught high school. I've taught elementary school even. Yes. And so my comment is. What I want to see in a graduate student is exactly the same thing that I want to see in a kindergarten student. Mm. Enthusiasm, curiosity, a sense of wonder, and a willingness to play around and understand. Hey, it's a universal life trait. And these are, it helps you. It Mm. It prevents your job from becoming boring when you're curious. There's always mm. something hiding around the bend that'll tickle you, that'll <laughs> that'll surprise you. Uh, exactly. And when you see your job as being boring, uh, uh, it's sad. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, it, it is sad, and I'm and it's very obvious that you love what you do. I think, and you have such a diverse yeah. set of interests, which I think is really cool too. Um, What do you think about incorporating? I've always, you know, with my education background, I've always thought we should start teaching computing and security and privacy from preschool because every kid has their own, you know, smartphone and and they're online. What's your thought about that? Um, My feelings, uh, I... My feelings are that quality security is invisible to a user. Ah, And low-quality security gives gives people headaches. And the obvious Mm -hmm. thing is, oh, yeah, I want a 20-character password, several of which are numbers and several of which are caps and several of which are largest. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is absurd, of course, because uh, you, password cracking is not really, it's not really uh-huh. the main problem that we're seeing much anymore. Uh, and far more important to get people to 
to choose memorable and unlikely to be compromised passwords when necessary. Even better to get rid of passwords entirely and use other means of verification. So yeah. In that that you pro- that you know better than I do. I'm not going to even venture to walk into this territory. But good security does not give people headaches. Rather, people shrug and say, oh, uh, the front door is locked. Here's my key. I can get in. Okay, I'm home. Uh, having, having, giving, forcing somebody to have two keys, a passphrase, and jump up and down three times and do a soft chew, that, to me, is a bad way to get into your house. Um, it, it, fosters, it fosters a feeling of I'm going to make a joke of the whole thing. Well, um, it, it slows down people who, who don't deserve to be slowed down. Right, right. I think that's a really good way. We're almost out of time here. We're in the last minute. But oh, no, no, no. I, I got lots of time. Uh, well, well, one thing I've got. My lots sound of engineer time. might say it's time. I'll have to have you come back for sure. But the, thank well, you, hold for, on, Rebecca. Rebecca, one of the cool <laughs> things about doing physics is yes. we we control time. Okay. So if you want to go backwards in time, you don't ask a biologist. You know, they'll show you some old fossils. But you want, if you want time to go backwards, ask somebody who does statistical mechanics. How come the arrow of time goes forward? You know, how would you turn it around the other way? There's some cool physics happening even today involving time. And I would so, love time travel. And, you know, I wish we could keep going. I think pretty soon our our sound engineer is going to tell us it's time to go. But thank you so much. You made uh, this 100th show just fabulous. And I hope everybody out there um, got a lot out of it. I know they did. Yeah. So thank well, you. Yeah, but the, the main thing is think, explore, be curious. Yes. Yeah, this is the kind of stuff. You'll learn in freshman physics, quoting Feynman. But you, you, um, um, it's our responsibility and our job to go look for little tiny things and figure out what's wrong. Yes. Pull, pull the thread and see where it takes you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, my, my guest today has been Dr. You. Clifford Stoll. Check out his book. I recommend it to everyone. I wanted to give that plug. You didn't ask me to. In fact, you said not to, but it's a great book, and I love your Klein bottles, too. So um, people need to check those out. Thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. Um, Bye the for book now. Is free at your public library. And, or the public library, yeah. <laughs> yes, much better. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.